If you listen to the first few episodes of this podcast, you may remember this guy. And I've done, you know, night air assaults into bad guy country and doing all this, all this other stuff. I've been shot at, I've been all, but this was by far the most dangerous, most yeah risky thing that I've ever gotten myself into. That's Chief Warrant Officer Joseph Rosamond, a pilot with the California Army National Guard. He flew one of the helicopters that airlifted to safety the hundreds of campers trapped at Mammoth Pool Reservoir. Faced with worsening smoke conditions and uncertainty about whether they'd be able to return for more flights, his helicopter crowded in three times the number of passengers it's rated for. That was definitely a wide-eyed, white-knuckled, very at that point like i had run out of outs at that point we realized if something happens if an engine quits if, if something with the airframe fails we don't have an out like we are going wherever gravity takes us but what you haven't heard yet is just how harrowing that rescue flight was i mean we were still into our contingency power and we were barely climbing out at a couple hundred feet every minute so it was a very, very, very shallow climb from, I think Mammoth Pool sits around 2,000 feet, and we ended up having to climb up to about 8,000 in order to, to clear the mountains and get back over. From KVPR, this is Escape from Mammoth Pool, the true story of how 242 people and 16 dogs survived one of the fastest moving wildfires in California history. I'm Carrie Klein. And in today's episode, a deeper dive with Chief Rosamond, who said those 12 hours flying in and out of the Creek Fire were riskier than any combat mission he's ever flown. He's been a guardsman for 24 years, he flies a Chinook helicopter, and he leads aviation safety trainings at his home base in Stockton. We begin here by talking about what his missions during wildfire season usually looked like before last September. So typically, uh, when the Chinook unit gets activated, we're doing water dropping missions. Um, so we'll bring our water buckets, 2,000 gallons, and we'll just fight fire all day and then go sleep at night. And sometimes they'll have like a cargo mission for us. But this one was really unique in the fact that it was a uh, it was into a wildfire, but we weren't working for Cal Fire. We were working for the Sheriff's Department. What what's going through your head as you as you take off and you're flying closer and closer to the fire and realizing kind of the situation that there is out there? So yeah, so when we get the first call, when I get the text, right, it's like 30 people. I'm like okay, cool, 30 people, one trip, no big deal, right? Um, as we start doing the pre-flight of the helicopter, we start doing the paperwork. The, we do a uh, flight plan and a risk assessment, you know, and and then I have to go through this whole briefing process to where I brief my plan to another to another senior pilot and then. We assess the risk, and then we take that plan to the commander. He approves us to go on the mission. So that whole process took about an hour, hour and a half or so. Um, so we offloaded the water bucket and got ready for passenger movements as best we could. And we took off right around 6 p.m. And you're still under the impression that it's 30 people at this point? Yeah, and, and at that point, it, it, had, it had morphed into 30 families. So, you know, you're doing the mental math in your head. Okay, 30 people, 30 families. So, you know, we're talking about 120 people uh, total, right? And um, I go, okay, that's still doable. We can still get that done uh, uh, pretty quickly. At that point, we're at the fire's edge now. And it's starting to get too dark to see. So we, uh, I was, uh, my co-pilot was, was flying. And uh, I kept flipping my night vision goggles up and down. Dropped a point on the map for, uh, for Mammoth Pools into that vicinity. And then uh, we'd 
we made up the plan to uh, uh, ingress through that San Joaquin Valley. And throughout all of this, as you're seeing the fire, does the fire look any different or feel any different from other fires that you've flown in, in the past? Or was this kind of old hat, you know, seeing seeing these plumes of smoke and just how intense it was? When, when we first got there, you could tell it was massive. It was pumping out a lot of smoke. It was extremely active, uh, moving really fast. So it was definitely one of the bigger fires that I'd been on. I'd been on a few big fires like this. Uh, but this one was, you know, it, it was pretty typical for a, a, a big fire, fast moving, uh, intense fire. It didn't get different until the sun went down. Because, like I said, we don't do nighttime aerial firefighting. So to now see this fire at night, the only other time I had seen uh, wildfires at night is when I'm going to my training area and I look, you know, hundreds of miles off into the distance and I see a fire burning in the distance. Definitely a whole new experience, something that we don't, we don't typically train for or do. So was this the first time that you ever flown it at night or just one of the first? I've flown in a wildfire at night, I should say. Uh, the first. Yeah. The, yeah. The f first time flying into a wildfire at night for sure. So what was that moment like when the people first came into view, when you saw, when you found the reservoir and you found the people waiting there? My co-pilot, I'm flying and I'm looking kind of down, just trying to make sure I'm not hitting terrain. And he goes, I see the spillway. I was like, man, we finally made it. And that was a big sigh of relief. And then, okay, well, we made it here. Now let's try to find the people. Where are the people, right? And he happened to point out his side. He's like, hey, I see a bunch of flashing lights out at the 10 o'clock. And so, okay, we're going to go that way. So, you know, people had the hazards on, they had their headlights on, that sort of thing. Uh, and that created a, a good um, marker for us to go to. And and we saw them, we're like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of vehicles out there. I didn't even see the people at first. It was like, all right, I see trucks, I see a boat, I see, you know, um, campers, all, the, all that kind of stuff. I'm going to do, okay, we're in the right spot. And some of the folks that I had spoken with said that they, you know, they were so excited to see you guys and they, you know, they were excited to be flashing their lights. But then they had a moment where they were like, oh, my gosh, they might have night vision goggles on. We might be blinding them. And like, was that was that a concern? Like, was it too bright for you guys or anything? No, it was. No, it was a concern. Like the whole time I'm thinking, OK, please don't turn on your lights. Right. But nothing that they did affected our, our landing there. OK, good. OK, good. Um, <laughs> all right. So you land. And then what? And you guys are the first to land, right? You learned it before the yeah. Blackhawk? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So what then? What? What's your, how do you encounter the people who are there on the beach? Yep. Yeah, so um, we picked a spot far enough up that ramp so that the, the people were down at our like right rear of the aircraft. Because one thing that we didn't want was for them to approach the front of the aircraft. That's really dangerous for a Chinook. And we didn't want them to get harmed by anything we picked up during the landing. So we were far enough away so that they were coming in the right direction, but we landed and the pilot's jobs were over, right? So uh, now my flight engineers, my crew members in the back, Sergeant Powell and Sergeant Esquivel, they lower the ramp and they immediately get to work organizing the crowd. And luckily for them, I believe they, they, there was some people on the ground that helped them take control of that crowd and prioritize uh, who was gonna go first. And uh, we had decided that we were gonna take children and we weren't going to separate them from their from their mothers, and we were going to take the wounded. So they they loaded, uh, I think it was sixty five people that first load, and when they were done, they said, "Okay, we're we're ready to go. Ramps up. When we're clear up." And so I had to ask them, "Hey, count how many people we have on board?" Because one, we want to make sure we have an accurate count of how many people we're we're moving, and two, we need to do some planning on the performance of the helicopter. 
we estimate 200 pounds per person as a conservative thing. Did our performance planning. Yep, we're good to go. And, and we took off. So uh, I just wanted to get the most people out there in the world to know that we had a bunch of injured people on board that were going to Fresno. So I'm telling Cal Fire, hey, I've got 65 people. There's a lot more coming. And we've got you know at least you know a dozen or more of them that are severely injured. I need you to coordinate emergency services down at Fresno. We get closer to Fresno and we're talking to air traffic control services. We just tell them the same thing, you know, roll all the emergency services that you have. It's going to be a, a, a mass thing going on here. And then, so that gets coordinated. And then we repeat it again once we talk to our own operations. So not only at that point, not only did our people start doing a bunch of stuff to prepare to receive these people, but then they also got the Air National Guard, the Air Force side uh, from across the runways to come over and they set up like a hasty uh, triage center, which was absolutely amazing that they were able, I mean, by the time we got there, uh, we're talking like a 20 minutes, 30 minute uh, reaction time, they were set up and, and ready to go and land, which is absolutely amazing. So when did you realize that you had an undercount of the number of people at the lake? Had you already figured that out at that point after you had landed that first time? No, personally, I did not. It probably wasn't until we were going towards Fresno and I had time to, to talk to the flight engineers. I'm like, Hey, how many people do you, do you think? And cause they had the best view once they were out of the helicopter and they mentioned, yeah, it looked like a lot of people like this is way more than 30 families. And at that point it was like, okay, well then we need to start maximizing uh, what we do each time until it's done. Uh, so we were fully prepared to just to keep going until, uh, until everybody was out of there. And so even as the smoke thickened, both helicopters returned for a second rescue flight. And it's at that time that the Chinook, the bigger of the two choppers, crowded 102 people, standing room only, into a space meant for 33 with seatbelts. So why do, what was that conversation like? Because I imagine for this one, your crew member was in on that too. When you guys decided, okay, yeah. this is what we're doing. Um, <laughs> there really wasn't one. It was, uh, hey, you guys ready yet? And you go, oh, hold on, we're still loading. Okay. Well, let me know when you got a number, you know, and, and I just kind of trust them to do their jobs. Right. And uh, uh, they made some decisions on the ground there to keep loading and keep loading and keep loading. I mean, I think we must've been on the ground for a good half hour or more. And, uh, and finally they said, okay, man, we are full. We're ready to go, but we are really, really full. And once again, I was like, okay, well, I need a head count. And uh, they're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. It's probably like we're going to estimate at 75. I'm like, okay, 75, no big deal, right? And we did the same steps as we did before. Yeah, we got plenty of power to do this. Uh, all right, here we go. We start taking off. And that's when I realized that that was a extreme underestimated number. <laughs> you get to just because the, from the way that the, the helicopter was maneuvering from. Yep, the way, the way that it picked up, the amount of power it took to lift it up off the ground the torque measuring uh, that was there, the amount of just the pure vibration of those rotors. When you start adding weight to those rotors, they flex basically, they cone, right? So you got all this weight on those rotors and they cone way up and that causes a lot of vibration throughout the airframe. And immediately I'm like, okay, yep, we are definitely heavy. And if it was a perfect scenario, we probably would have set back down and offloaded something, but it wasn't a perfect scenario. So, by that time, we had kind of drifted off off of the ramp and back over the water. So there really wasn't a way to, hey, we were kind of committed at this point. There's not a way to go back. 
So we were at the very, very maximum. In fact, we were kind of over the maximum uh, allowed use of that power for a little bit. We accelerated just over the water top um, until we were able to get some airspeed. That airspeed then allows our rotors to work more efficiently. Uh, and once we got through that effective range of airspeed, we were able to climb out. But I mean, we were still into our contingency power uh, range and we were barely climbing out at a couple hundred feet every minute. So it was a very, very, very shallow climb from, I think Mammoth Pool sits around 2,000 feet and we ended up having to climb up to about 8,000 in order to, to clear uh, the mountains and, and get back over. And do I understand that you couldn't even close the back of the, the helicopter with, that, with all those people? Yes, now I wanna, cap, I wanna caveat this. I didn't know any of this stuff until we landed and after we shut down and, they, and the guys in the back told me what they did. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were so full that we had people standing on the ramp. They couldn't close the ramp all the way. They had, you know, cargo straps that they strapped up in an X so that people could hold on to places, standing room only type of thing. Uh, don't put your hands there. That's a spinning drive shaft. Like it kind of dangerous. You know, because of the limited power margins we had on takeoff, I was concerned about our power margins for landing. So we had briefed that, okay, we're going to do a roll on landing where we, where we kind of roll the helicopter on its wheels so that we had uh, the least amount of, of power to use. And that's when the fine were like, well, that's not going to work because we can't close the ramp all the way. Oh, okay. Well then uh, next best thing, we'll just do it close to the ground. Right. And we'll, you know, and, and worst case scenario, then we pop a tire or something like that. But it ended up all working out just fine. Landed, taxied in. We could tell even with the power steering was a little sluggish. And then um, I think somebody took, I think uh, Colonel uh, Hall, I think he, uh, General Hall, he took a, uh, a video of everybody exiting the aircraft. And it was like three minutes long of nothing but people continuously coming out. And that's where we got to count for uh, 102. Wow. Uh, so those decisions that your crew members made, I mean, in hindsight, did you guys have to talk about it and be like, you guys shouldn't have done that? Or, or are you glad that they did? No, I'm totally glad that they did because, I mean, they saw what was going on on the ground there. They saw how many people we had. And, and this lift had to have been close to midnight now, maybe 11 o'clock. We're running out, of, running out of duty day. The weather was getting worse. So that second time in, we could definitely tell that the smoke, uh, because cooling of the earth's surface after the, after the sun goes down, the wind patterns change. And a lot of the valleys we were flying in were starting to get smoked out. So we knew we had to maximize how many people we, we took out because we may not get a third trip. We may not get a fourth trip. So I, I'm happy they did what they did. I'm really happy that the aircraft was able to perform the way it did as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so then in the end, you were able to go back and do a third flight. Yep. And then we went back to the third flight and we were able to get everybody out. It was later that month that Chief Rosamond and the six other crew members of those two choppers were awarded an aviation award known as the Distinguished Flying Cross from the White House. And during his speech at the ceremony, President Donald Trump, in office at the time, mentioned that these men completed this mission against orders, that they'd been told to turn around, it was too dangerous. A couple of news outlets reported this as well. I asked if it was true. Uh, no, that, that was, uh, uh, it was actually kind of funny to hear that after talking to some people, I think that came from a different mission. There was some other helicopters from other agencies that were initially spooling up to go do that mission. And then they were told, never mind, it's too smoky. You're not going to be able to get in type of thing. 
when we called that operations chief on the ground, he mentioned that it was extremely smoky and that we probably wouldn't make it. And so we told him, well, we're going to try. And they were fully supportive of us trying. Got it. Okay. What would have been, what would the conditions have had to have been for you to turn back and, and abort the mission? So one thing that I always leave myself when I'm flying is I always want to have a way out, right? I don't want to get down to where my, the plan I'm doing now is the only plan I have. So really the conditions would have had to been impossible to, to have stopped us trying that. Or the, the only other thing that would have stopped me from, from doing that was if one of my crew members had said, Hey man, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this anymore. And right then that would have been uh, a showstopper because once again, uh, everybody on board that crew gets a vote and not one of those crew members is a passenger. And so how did you, you know, how did you feel getting into bed that night? <laughs> Once this was all over, I mean, how do you, how did you kind of reflect back on, on this, on this, this mission that you did? Um, it was, uh, well, one, we were really tired. It was like, we got back to the room about 4 a.m. Uh, and I and think you were we staying all... in hotels, right? Like you didn't, you didn't actually make it back home. Correct. Yeah, yeah. 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 We stayed at hotels and, and uh, kind of crash out, take a shower. I mean, even. When we got off the helicopter, you know, our boss was kind of like, yeah, you guys smell of smoke. Like on that third trip, it was so bad and we were just so inundated with smoke that uh, one of the fine engineers started to get full nauseous. Right? He's like, man, I don't feel good. And at that point, I thought, OK, maybe this third trip isn't going to work, isn't going to happen. But he, he was able to overcome that. And he's like, nope, that, we're, we're, I'm good now. Let's keep going type of thing. And next day we came in and we got the final numbers and, and we kind of talked about it. And everybody was kind of amped up. Like they realized that we had just done something pretty amazing. That's when we really kind of like, you know, we need to write this stuff down. So we, we just started like everybody started writing down their stories, what they saw. That way we, we had the ability to put it all together at some point. And, and that's when we really had the time to, to, to think about it. And like, wow, yeah, I, that was crazy. That was uh, amazing what, what just happened. And, and just glad we got it done. And even like seeing all those people streaming out of the Chinook, and seeing, like you said, I mean, the first flight, the, the women and children, the injured people. I mean, did any of that kind of get personal for you? I mean, how did you, even just in those first moments, how did that feel for you? Yeah, it's still, um, when I talk about it now, I still get emotional about it when I think back. Because I remember uh, looking back on that first trip, and I kind of moved my head around and I looked, and I saw a family. It was, uh, kids were about the same age as my kids right uh with with their mother and whatnot and i was and i just thought to myself i mean this could be my family this could be you know anybody's family really you know and that really set really hit personal i remember telling the guy i was like hey, okay i can't look back there anymore we got to we got to finish this job i can't you know can't look back anymore as uh that's gonna that's gonna mess me up Chief Rosamond enlisted in the National Guard more than two decades ago. He's been called on to fight dozens of wildfires, and he's flown combat missions in many countries abroad. And so it means something when he says this rescue mission was the riskiest thing he's ever done. I asked him to elaborate on that. Yeah, well, I happen to be in Kuwait right now. I was here in Iraq back in 03. Uh, I've been to Afghanistan twice in 2008 and 2012. And we were extremely busy, especially in, in 2008. When you talk about like going and doing these middle of the night assaults into some compound or whatever, you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. You know that, all right, when I when I get close to landing, I'm going to see some tracers or I'm going to see some explosions. It's no big deal, right? And they, it either hits or it doesn't. Nothing you can do about it, right? 
but this was definitely reactive the whole time like didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into until we got there and um and then how did it feel uh to be awarded that distinguished flying cross oh that was amazing i mean one that is not typically an award that potus gives um you know you, you normally see potus giving medals of honor and that sort of thing so for him to come down uh, for that office to come down and and give that award was uh, just absolutely amazing to begin with. And to, you know, that's basically the highest award that you can get for aviation service. Uh, just extremely humbled, like couldn't really ask for more. And it, that was pretty amazing. Pretty awesome. Is that, I'm, I'm assuming that's the highest distinction you've gotten in your career. Yes. Yep. Yep. And what's really amazing too, is that um, a lot of times what happens in the army uh, is that the pilots will get the really good award. And the, and the enlisted soldiers who are in the back with us the whole time, uh, they will get some lesser award, right? And in this case, uh, that didn't happen uh, and, every, and everybody got that the same award, but which is really good. One thing that typically gets overlooked as well is that we, we talk a lot about the crew, the, the air crew and that team, but the, the people that support that team, right? Deserve just as much credit because we couldn't have done hardly any of what we accomplished. I mean receiving all those people, the operations team for coordinating all the emergency services, for coordinating uh, with all the different agencies, the Air Force team, the Navy team that came in to help as well. So yeah, I mean, all those operations, maintenance, keeping the aircraft flying, the fuelers that were right there ready to, to give us some more gas and, and get on the way, like that the entire team is what made all of that possible. Thanks so much to Chief Warrant Officer Joseph Rosamond of the California Army National Guard. In the next episode, how you can prepare for wildfires the next time you go camping or hiking in the backcountry. That's next week on Escape from Mammoth Pool. This episode was reported and produced by me, Carrie Klein, and edited by Alice Daniel. Music by Kevin McLeod, web support from Alex Burke. This has been a production of KVPR, NPR for Central California. Thanks, as usual, for listening. Listening.